Hi everyone, I'm Michelle and I'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 to 36. Verses 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tight sashes round their waists and bound caps on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin, and its flesh, and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobes of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offerings. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, 
a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and, all his, and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle, for reading God's Word so well for us this morning. And thank you, Sam, for leading us in this time of worship. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here. And for those of you who are new to the church, my name is Joel. I'm the associate pastor serving here at One Covenant Church. Now, we're in the middle of a sermon series looking at the book of Leviticus. And as we turn to God's Word this morning, let us seek for His help to understand His Word. So let's come before our God in a time of prayer. Let's pray. O High King of highest heaven, Lord, we come before you as your people and we thank you that we can have this privilege of addressing you as our Father and to have this privilege of worshipping you. And Father, as we come before you this morning, as we seek to understand your word, would you illuminate our hearts so that we may not just understand it, but I pray as well that we will receive this word into our hearts. And Father, I pray as well that this truth that you have spoken, that you will be speaking to us in your word, it will be the very truth that will be speaking to one another's lives, Lord. And so we come before you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll resume our studies in the book of Leviticus, and as we turn to chapter 8 this morning, we find ourselves at a transition point in the book. Now, so far, we've looked at the first seven chapters of Leviticus, which focus on the offerings and how they're to be offered. Now, in this next section, from chapters 8 to 10, the emphasis shifts to the priests. And our passage this morning looks at the consecration or the ordination of the priests. Now, they were instructed by God back in Exodus chapter 28 and 29 on how they were to be appointed. And now in chapter 8, chapter 8 describes the execution of those instructions as Aaron and his sons were consecrated. Now, when you look at this text, it's striking to see how the priesthood was implemented by following the precepts of God and following them very closely. Now, one of the recurring themes throughout this chapter and in chapter 9 as well is that things happened as God 
has commanded. Now the phrase, the Lord commanded, appears 11 times in this chapter alone. And this shows us the importance of following what God says at every step of the way. And just a side note, this is a contrast with what we find in chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. But without getting ahead of ourselves, what we find with the priesthood is that the origins of the priesthood is actually divine. And this is why they needed to listen to what God says about this very closely. Now, the Old Testament scholar, Derek Titbaugh, he says this, the priesthood was not a human invention or a sociological convenience, but a divinely instituted order of those who would stand in the gap between God and his people. And so this is the very thing that we'll be examining in our text this morning. Now, as you look at the text, you may find yourself, you know, kind of lost in the details, or perhaps you might even become like really bored at the details that have been described here. And I really hope that my voice don't make that a lot worse. Um, but as we examine this text, what we'll find is that these rituals, that we, these rites that we see here are actually rich, very rich in meaning, and they give us great insight to how God relates to his people. And I hope by the end of it that we can better appreciate the priesthood and how it looks forward to the coming of our great high priest. And so we'll look at this text in three parts, mediation, dedication, and transformation. Mediation, dedication, and transformation. So if your Bible, turn that with me or turn that in your electronic devices. Now chapter 8 begins with God instructing Moses to gather Aaron and his sons and with all of the items necessary for the ceremony. Now interestingly enough, God told Moses in verse 3 to assemble all the congregation as well. Now to be sure, when it says that the congregation gathered, it's actually referring to the body of elders who represented the tribes of Israel. So it's not referring literally to the whole of Israel because the assembly would have been way too big for them to gather at the gathering point. And so the elders of the various tribes, they would have represented Israel at this ordination service. And yet it was important that all of Israel would be represented here. Now, why is that so important? Now, on the one hand, it shows us that the priesthood needed a public recognition. It needed public acknowledgement. You see, the priests were not appointed in secrecy. Rather, they were publicly acknowledged for their roles. You know, after all, being a priest meant that you were a public leader in the lives of the nation, in the eyes of the people. And so it was important for them to be acknowledged and acknowledged in the public way by the assembly. So that's one reason. But on the other hand, it also tells us something. It tells us about the importance of the priesthood in the life of Israel. You see, what is happening here is not just the installation of a priest, and it's not just the installation of a few priests, but it's actually the installation of a national priesthood. And so what we find here is something of monumental significance in the life of the nation. Now this begs the question of what is so important about the priesthood that demands the attention of the whole nation. And this leads to the question of what is the role of a priest. Now we had a glimpse of that in the previous chapters and we saw 
that one of their main tasks was to, was to offer sacrifices to God. And so what they did was that they played their roles as mediators between God and his people. So just to take one example, you know, when we look at the guilt offering or what we call the compensation offering, you may recall that when someone sinned in the holy things of God, what the offender had to do was to pay restitution but he paid restitution to the priest, and this was followed by an atonement sacrifice. Now, the offense we recognize was against God, but it was the priest who accepted the restitution, and he was the one who offered the atoning sacrifice. And this shows us that the priest was the mediator between God and the offender, and more broadly, the priest was the mediator between God and his people. And this mediatorial aspect is important not just for the priest, but also because of what Israel was called to be. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, they were called to be priests. You see, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, we're told that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The nation as a whole was called to be a priestly nation that mediated between God and the rest of the nations. And this was not just for the Old Testament Israelites, but this applies to New Testament believers as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Apostle Peter says this, but you, referring to believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light. So in other words, fellow believers, what it means is this, that all of us are priests. That all of us as Christians, as believers, that all of us are priests. Now to be sure, you know, there's no need for any of us to wear garments, to wear vestments, to wear all of those ornaments that the priest wore. But it does mean that this is our identity, that this is our identity in this present age. And this applies to every believer, whether you're in full-time ministry or not. In fact, this is what the 16th century reformer Martin Luther was getting at with his understanding of the priesthood of all believers. Now, many of us, we understand the priesthood of all believers as meaning direct access to God, that we can approach God without needing a clergy to mediate between us. But on the other hand, Luther understood that this priestly identity does not lead us to religious individualism. And what I mean by that is this, that it's not just saying that it's all about my relationship with God and nothing else matters. You know, my relationship with other people, it doesn't matter. My relationship with my fellow brothers and sisters, none of that matters. Luther is saying, that this is not what it means to be a priest. Instead, understanding this actually compels us to be a priestly presence to one another in the church as well as those outside of the church. On the Reformation historian Timothy George, he puts it this way on Luther's understanding of the priesthood of all believers. This is what Timothy George says. For Luther, the priesthood of all believers did not mean I am my own priest. It meant rather in the community of saints, we are all priests to each other. We stand before God and intercede for one another. We proclaim God's word to one another and we celebrate his presence among us in worship, 
praise and fellowship. And moreover, our priestly ministry does not terminate upon ourselves. It propels us into the world in service and witness. And friends, this is what we are called to be, that we are to embody a priestly presence, not just to our fellow brothers and our sisters, but to those outside of the church as well. It's a call for us to serve our neighbors as representatives of God. You see, we were never meant to be isolationists. You know, we were never called to just withdraw from the world around us. Or rather, God has called us to look outside of ourselves and to engage with those around us. And since this is what God has called us to be, this is the priestly identity that all of us have, let us then live in light of that calling. And so this, is, this was the role of the priest, that they were to mediate between God and his people. But in order for the priest to perform their duties well, they needed to be men of dedication. And so this is our second point. Now, as we turn to verses 6 to 30, we actually come to the ordination service itself. And there are quite a few steps here, and there's a lot of things happening here. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to walk through them step by step and we can, so that we can actually see what is the logical flow of this service. And so we begin with the first thing, which is purification. So verse 6, Aaron and his sons, they were washed with water. Now, this was a rite that was often linked with ritual purification. We often find this in the Old Testament. In addition, what we find is that washing in the Bible is often an outward action, but it was an outward action that represents an inward desire, an inward desire to be cleansed inwardly. It signified the cleansing of one's impurities before one could come before the Lord. So that was the first step, the step of purification. And then the priest had to put on new clothes. So we find this in verses 7 to 9, and we find this in verse 13. Now this putting on of new clothes indicates taking on a new and significant role. That a person, when he put on, puts on new clothes, when the priest was putting on new clothes, he was taking on a new and significant role. Now we find this in ancient Near Eastern cultures of Israel's day, but we see this today as well. So for instance, if you're a soldier, when you first put on your uniform, we have quite a few guys who have been through national service, so you might remember that. When you first put on your uniform, that is actually saying something. It's saying something significant because now you are serving your country as a soldier. Or if you're a bride, if you're a bride who is putting on her wedding dress on her wedding day, that is significant as well because now you're assuming the new role of being someone else's wife. And so similarly, what you find in the priest is that the priest is entering a new role as he puts on new clothes. Now there's much that we can talk about about their clothes and we can actually spend a whole sermon just talking about what they were wearing. But for now, I'll just highlight one thing about their clothing, and in particular, the clothing of the high priest. What we find with the high priest was this, that what he wore shows us the glorious dignity 
of his role. It shows us the glorious dignity of his role. Now in Leviticus chapter 8, you'll notice that Aaron's garments have quite a few ornaments on it. You have the ephod, you have the breastplate, you have the urim and the fumim, you have the turban, and then you have the holy crown. So these are all of the things that Aaron had to wear. But when you look at his sons, like the normal priests, their garments were actually a lot simpler, right? A lot plainer and a lot simpler. Now, we're not exactly sure, you know, the urim and the tumim, what they were made of or how they worked exactly. But what we do know is that people actually consulted them. They consulted them so that they may know whether they should do a particular thing and whether this thing will lead to success or failure. So in other words, it was a means of knowing God's will in a specific situation. And only the high priest had the urim and the fumim. But when you look at all of these differences, these differences actually show us that the high priest was specifically set apart to be the leader of the priests. That the high priest, with all of his ornaments and everything that he was wearing, he was set apart to be the leader of the priest. But at the same time, the clothing actually points us to the glorious dignity and the holiness of the high priestly office. You see, the ancient Israelite, you know, when he looked at the high priest, you know, he would look at him and he'd be like, wow, look at all of those things that he was wearing, that he would have been impressed by his very presence. And actually, this detail, this aesthetic details was actually intentional. Now, just a quick note. When you look at the high priest's clothing, it's actually curious to note that these were actually things that royalties would wear, you know, whether it's the robes, whether it's the turban, or whether it's the crown. All of these things were things that royalties would wear. And what this means is this, that when the people gazed upon him, they were supposed to be reminded of the very king, the heavenly king that he represented, that the high priest was representing the heavenly king. Now, the Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham, he puts it this way, that since the high priest was the mediator between God and his people, his costly garments symbolized the value of his ministry to the nation. And so this was the very thing that the high priest was called to, and this shows us what, and his clothing shows us the significance of what he did. So there's a second step, the clothing. I know it was a bit long, but the rest will be slightly shorter. So... Step three, the anointing. We come to verses 10 to 12 and we find that the tabernacle was anointed with the anointing oil and then you have the objects in the courtyard anointed as well. So the altar of burnt offering, the utensils, all of these things. And all of these things were done before Aaron himself was anointed. And what this anointing did was that it consecrated all of these things, the place of worship and the high priest who was working in the place of worship. All of these things are now consecrated and they are now set apart to the Lord. And after all of these things, now everything is in place. Now it's in place to offer the sacrifices for the ceremony. Now there are three main sacrifices. There's the sin offering in verses 14 to 17, the burnt offering 18 to 21, and the ordination offering from 22 to 29. Now we've seen the first two offerings in the previous chapter, so I'm just going to do a quick recap here. That the sin offering, what it did was that it pointed to the cleansing of one's impurities. And then you have the burnt offering, which was the main atoning offering. It symbolized the offering of oneself before the Lord. So the thing that's different here is the ordination 
offering and it's unique because of the consecration of this priest, the whole ceremony itself. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the ordination offering is actually not entirely unique. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, the ordination offering actually has similar features with another offering that we have seen so far, which is the peace offering, which is known as the fellowship offering. Now, for instance, so there's the throwing of the blood around the altar in verse 24. There's the burning of the fats in verses 25 and 28. And then there's the sharing of the meat between the officiant and the person offering the sacrifice. And we find this in Leviticus chapter 7. And as a result, what we find is that the ordination offering is very much like a peace offering. It's very much like a fellowship offering. And when we look at these three offerings, it actually gives us, it actually helps us to explain the logical order of these offerings. That a priest needed to be cleansed before he could offer himself to God and to have fellowship with him. And so this is the reason why the offerings were ordered in this particular way. And after all of these sacrifices, we come to verse 30, and arguably, this is the climax of the whole ceremony. You have the anointing of Aaron and his sons once more, but this time, it wasn't just the anointing oil, but it was oil and blood. Isn't that interesting? That they were anointed with oil and blood. In addition, they were sprinkled upon together with the garments that they were wearing, so it was not just part of them, but their whole selves were sprinkled with oil and blood. So what's the significance of this? You see, in the Old Testament, blood is a symbol of life. And this is the image that, that we have here in this act. And this meant that the priests were called to be a living offering, that they were called to be a living sacrifice to God. But for that to happen, for them to be a living offering to God, they had to first die to themselves. That they had to first die to themselves. One Old Testament scholar says that the symbolism of blood and oil indicates that this rite signifies a death to selfishness on the part of Aaron and the sons. So in other words, what we find here is this that there's no place for selfishness, that there's no place for self-centeredness when it comes to serving God. And this is what true dedication looks like. And friends, as believers, as those who are royal priests, this is what we are called to be, that we are set apart for God and we are called to offer up our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, and this means that whatever we are called to do, whatever we are called to be, whether it's our jobs, whatever jobs we're in, or to be husbands or wives or parents or children, all of these callings, we are called to honour God in all of this. We are called to be dedicated to God in all that we do. And we are not called to live as selfish people. And friends, you know, there are various ways that selfishness can show up in our very lives. So for instance, if I decide to let go of a relationship, if I decide to forsake a relationship simply because there's no payoff for me, that is actually being selfish. If I decide to not say the right thing, if I decide to not do the right thing simply because 
I fear the consequences that are coming towards me. And that is actually being selfish. And the fact is this, that in our natural state, we will either use people in a selfish way or we'll allow ourselves to selfishly be used by other people. So for instance, if I'm at my workplace, if I'm scolded by my boss, I will just take it, right? I just take it because I know that that will help in my self-elevation. That will help me in my promotion. If it helps me, if I just receive all of the scolding and all of that, just like, ah, oh, okay, fine, just scold me or whatever. If it helps my promotion, then I'll just take it. And that, my friends, is being selfish as well. And this selfishness, this self-centeredness, actually goes against the grain of what dedication actually looks like. Well, let me just clarify something, and I think it's an important clarification, that being selfish is not the same as pursuing our self-interest. Let me say that again. Being selfish is not synonymous with pursuing our self-interest. You know, we often confuse the two, but they're not the same thing. So for instance, if I think that it's in my self-interest, you know, after talking to people, they say that I should go run, you know, go out for running, and I should go for a 10-click run because it will be good for my health, that in and of itself is not selfish, right? It's in your self-interest to go exercise, but that in and of itself is not selfish. And oftentimes, the difference between the two actually boils down to this that selfishness is self-gain at the expense of other people. That selfishness is self-gain at the expense of other people. If we have a healthy form of self-interest, it doesn't mean that you are being selfish. But the problem is this. The problem is that we are all sinful, that all of our hearts are sinful, that all of our hearts are turned in on the inside, it's turned inwards, and we will do whatever we can to preserve ourselves according to what we think is right. And I'm not just saying, you are selfish. You are selfish, because when I do this, when I point this, I have three fingers pointing back at me. Right? What I'm saying is that that is our natural tendency for all of us, for myself included, that we will look to our own selfish interests. And so what is the solution? What we need is a new heart. What we need is a different heart. A heart that will seek our self-interest according, but according to what counts in God's kingdom. A heart that God gives which enables us to look beyond our selfish interests. In fact, our Lord Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And essentially, Jesus is, what is he doing? He's appealing to our self-interest. And he's calling us to find life in him. But to do so, we do so through the paradox of losing our very lives. So in other words, God's interest is actually in our self-interest, and it's in our self-interest when he offers us life. 
And on the other hand, selfishness is when we choose our own lives instead of his. And if we truly care about our self-interest, then we would have, we would adopt an eternal perspective on things. You know, we will not just use people, we will, we will not just see them as people that we can use, but we'll see them, as C.S. Lewis puts it, as immortals. We will not just see people as mere mortals, but to see them as immortal souls. And once we grasp this, once we understand this, that is when we can begin to serve others. That is when we can begin to honor God out of a desire to please Him, to do what pleases Him. And this, my friends, is what true dedication looks like. Now, finally, now we come to the, near the end of the ordination. And what we find here as we come to the end is that there is a transformation that is happening. There's a transformation as the priests prepare themselves to do what they were called to do. So this brings us to our final point, and I'll promise you it's shorter than the second point. Now, after all of these rituals, you may think that Aaron and his sons, okay, now I'm ready. We are all ready to do what we are called to do. But notice that they didn't immediately jump to do their duties. This is not what's happening in here. In fact, what they were called to do was to wait. They were called to wait. So look at verses 33 to 35 with me. This is what it says. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For you take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And so what we find here is that there is a delay. There's a delay between the appointment and the execution of their priestly duties. Now you may wonder, you know, why is there such a delay? Why is there a delay over here and specifically a delay of seven days? And I think the reason, the answer is actually fairly straightforward. The reason is to make sure that the priest did not rush into their service. It was to make sure that the priest did not rush headlong into their service and to be ill-prepared for what they were called to do. In fact, some scholars noted that the seven days here correspond to the days of creation. That the seven days here, just as it took God seven days to complete creation, so it took seven days for the priesthood to be created and to be consecrated. And it was almost as if the priests, all of them, were being made into a new creation. That the priests, during this period of seven days, were being made into a new creation as they prepared themselves to serve God and you look at these priests as they were engaged in all of these rites, what were they doing? They were purifying themselves of their sins. They were deepening their own personal fellowship with God. And they were preparing themselves as they began their work as a priest. So all of these things, what are they doing? It's actually conforming them to holiness. And this step is so important 
that Moses actually warned Aaron and his sons. He warned them to not leave the area, to not leave the compounds. And if they left for even one second, if they left, what would, what would they be doing? What they would be doing is that they would be disregarding the holiness of the whole process. They're disregarding the holiness of these seven days. And what actually happened is that they are going to die if they do that. And thank God they actually stayed inside as commanded by God. But again, you know, why was it important for the priest to be holy in their service? Well, it's important because of who they were serving. You know, they were not just serving a normal human being, but who they were serving was the almighty and holy God. And this is why it was important for them to be consecrated and to be consecrated fully unto God. And as we've seen, this is not just consecrating our actions, it's not just consecrating our appearances, but involves the consecration of our hearts as well. It involves the consecration of our hearts. And this means this, that the priests need to be prepared. They need to be prepared for their service. And this will actually help them not to just prevent them from falling way too quickly in their service, but also to prevent them from harming other people in their service. And we can think about it this way in our day, just like how no one should actually rush into doing ministry. And especially if you're doing a lot of things in ministry, you shouldn't rush into all of these things. In fact, if you're doing all of these things, it can actually deceive you. It can deceive you because you think by doing all of these things in church that I am such a holy person, that I am such a sanctified person for doing all of these things in church, when in actual fact, you are actually not. And so when we rush ourselves into doing too many things, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are actually sanctified. And this is why it's important for us to be prepared and why it's important for the priests themselves to be prepared. Now, what do all these rites, what do all these rituals actually show us? You know, in these seven days, they actually show us this. It shows us that the priests were sinners as well. That the priests themselves were sinners, that they were impure, that they were sinful, just like the rest of Israel. And because of that, they needed atonement for themselves. In fact, when you look at someone, you look at someone like Aaron, you'd be like, whoa, you know, how is he able to be the high priest? You may remember back in Exodus chapter 32, you know, with the whole golden calf incident. And who was the guy leading the whole of Israel to idolatry? It was Aaron. It was Aaron who led the nation to idolatry. So you look at that and you look at a guy like this and you're like, what? You know, how can this guy become the high priest? And if anything, what that illustrates for us is that the mediators themselves, the priests themselves, fell short of the standards. They fell short of the standards that God requires. And the author of Hebrews actually tells us in chapter 7, verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, that these men were men characterized by weakness. 
And because of this, what the priests went through in the seven days was important. It was very important for them to do that, and especially because they're much closer to the presence of God. They're much closer to the glorious presence of God. And this is why they needed to be consecrated, because without all of these things, it was impossible for them to come to God. It was, there was no way that they could have come before the Lord. And this is why they, they needed this. This is why they needed to be transformed so that they can begin their priestly duties. Now, friends, as you look at the Old Testament priesthood, what we find are two stark realities. And these are realities that apply to all of us. And the first is this. We are confronted with the pervasive nature of sin. We are confronted with the pervasive nature of sin. Now, you may have heard of this saying before, which says that the best of men are but men at best. Do you catch that? The best of men are but men at best. And what it tells us, actually reminds us, is this, that sin affects all of us and it affects even the best of us. That sin affects all of us and we find this in the need for the priest and the high priest to be cleansed. And just like all of these priests, you know, we are all sinners, you know, even though we are believers, that we are you know, God's royal priests, but all of us remain sinners. And just like all of these priests, we will continue to sin. We will continue to sin against God. We have done it in the past, and we will do it in the future, and we will sin against God. And if we simply look to ourselves, then all hope is actually lost. Because in ourselves, we have no ability to do what's right, to do what's good. And so this reminds us that we are sinners, all of us. But the second thing is this. The fact that all of these rituals had to be repeated in every generation actually tells us something. It tells us that they were insufficient. It tells us that they were insufficient to deal with sin. The high priest, Aaron himself, was a sinner who needed a mediator to come between him and God himself. And this tells us something. It tells us that the Old Testament priesthood was actually looking forward. It was actually anticipating something greater. And what it looks forward is the coming of a priest and is the coming of a great high priest. And this is what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And what we find here is this, that the Old Testament priesthood was looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Jesus was the perfect, he was the anointed high priest. In fact, the word Christ means the anointed one. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who offered up himself 
as the once for all sacrifice to God. Jesus, when you look at him, when he died on the cross, when he was hanging on the cross, he was not wearing all of the vestments that the priests were wearing, the glorious vestment that the high priest was wearing. Instead, what was he, what did he have? He was stripped of everything. He was stripped of everything. But he was stripped of all of this so that we can have everything in him. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that all of us may have access to God himself. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, died for us, but he continues to serve us as the great high priest. He continues to intercede for us at the right hand of God, our Father. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can actually rephrase it in this way, that while we were still utterly selfish in all of our ways, Jesus Christ died for us in a selfless way. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, died for us in a selfless way. And this, my friends, is the great high priest that we are called to trust in, that we are called to place our faith in him. So friends, what's your response today? What's your response after hearing all of that? How the Old Testament priesthood pointed to the coming of Christ, our great high priest? And how would you respond on this very day? Let me conclude with the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 27. This is what it says. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of a people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So friends, Jesus is our great high priest. He offered up himself so that there's no need for all of us to offer sacrifices. There's no need for us to come before God each day to offer sacrifices because we, when we trust in Christ, that we have now become living sacrifices unto God. And so as we go, and regardless of what we are called to do, let us live according to our identity. Let us live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Let us set aside all of our selfishness. Let us set aside all of our self-centeredness and set our eyes on the one who died selflessly for all of us. And may this encourage all of our hearts to know that Christ has offered up himself to God so that we can offer our whole lives, our whole selves to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge, we recognize that we can only come to you through the blood that was shed for us by your dear son, Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that we are often selfish. We are often selfish in our very own ways. And yet, God, in your grace, you have showed us how the gospel points us back to the cross and how it points us back to the selfless sacrifice 
of your very son. And so, Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us, the undeserving grace that is shown to each one of us. And we pray that you humble us with this reality, humble us with what Jesus accomplished for us when he died for us. Help us and gently bring us back when we wander from, from your way and wander into our ways. And Father, we pray that we will stand amazed, that we will stand amazed once more at what you have done for everything that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. So we come before you, we bring our prayers to you, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.